This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, January 5th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. How have European countries attempted to crack down on disfavored speech? And could those models of control find their way into the United States? Fleming Rose is an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute and recipient of the 2016 Milton Friedman Prize for Advancing Liberty. We spoke about why free speech is a better policy for handling radical ideologies. If you're a terrorist and you threaten someone and they comply with the action that you want them to take or under penalty of something, you've become more powerful. As a terrorist, you have effectively terrorized. Yes, and uh, you know that's the way terrorism works. Uh, through fear and uh, or the terrorist threat through uh, fear and uh, intimidation and uh, it's it's what uh, Tim Fergarden Nash uh, a few years ago called the assassin's veto or the jihadist veto in uh, in my case um, and I understand I mean there are there are good reasons to be afraid I mean people were killed in Paris and uh, and there were, I think, between five and ten foiled attacks on Julian's Post where I worked. Um, the problem is that uh, if you cave in to intimidation and terror and violence, you will not get less of it. You will get more of it because you show the terrorist that it works. So why stop? Uh, that's a very good reason to continue that uh, strategy. In addition, when uh, media outlets uh, and governments make an example of terrorist groups, uh, they typically are in, in the process of inflating a threat and making that threat seem larger than it might actually be. And that's a pretty typical, that's a pretty standard story, too. Yes, but it also has to do with the nature of terrorism, that it is a threat that you can't control. It's a risk that you can't control. You know, if you drive your own car, there also is a risk that you may end up in an accident. But the ter- terrorist threat is uncontrollable, and therefore there is a tendency to exaggerate the threat also in terms of reactions. That's what happened after 9-11. That's what happened in Spain uh, after March 11, 2004, in London, and so on and so forth. And right now we see it in Europe, uh, in France, emergent, state of emergency, uh, anti-terrorism uh, laws that really um, uh, infringes upon uh, fundamental civil liberties in a, in a liberal democracy. With respect to Europe specifically, what have what have we seen over the past couple of years that uh, worries you with respect to speech, with respect to government regulation uh, in the face of a terrorist threat or an extremist threat? Well, just to give you a few examples, I think there is, uh, um, you know, uh, reason for grave concern. Um, most European countries today, they have passed laws criminalizing glorification of terror. I don't know what that is. It's a very slippery term. And the trend, unfortunately, is that, that Europe traditionally has been divided into what I will call liberal, more liberal democracies to the north, 
UK, Denmark, the Netherlands, and more militant democracies like Germany because of their historical legacy, France to a certain extent. Uh, but now um, it's it's the militant democracies that are having their way so that Denmark and the UK are passing laws that you you wouldn't think that they would do. And they didn't do that during the Cold War when we faced, uh, I would say, graver threat than uh, today. That is the Communist Soviet Union, a superpower, uh, an ideology that had universal appeal. Um, uh, and in Denmark, we didn't ban the Communist Party. The Communist Party, uh, you know, they were in parliament. They had their own newspapers. That ha- they had their own schools. They had their own unions. Uh, and I think that was the right way to fight that ideology. Uh, today, we are doing exactly the opposite, uh, facing a new kind of threat. But I would say when it comes to Islamism, also a totalitarian ideology that that wants to take on the, the foundation of, uh, of liberal democracy. So to the extent that these uh, European democracies have chosen in the face of some threat to ban certain speech, you obviously view that as counterproductive. Absolutely. Why, and, and why is that? Because that's not the right way to uh, to fight it for, but, for, but for, for, for many reasons. But I would I would also say, you know, just to give you another example, this code of conduct that uh, Google, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube signed with the European Union uh, this year. I mean, all these companies come from Silicon Valley, and they have a. I mean, you know, the way they exploit or explore the, the digital technologies in a very libertarian way. You know, they believe in, in, in open source, open societies, everybody should have access and so on and so forth. And they have been forced to sign a code of conduct removing hate speech material within 24 hours after they, you know, are being noticed. The problem is that there is no clear definition of hate speech. There's no clear definition in general, but in this document, it's just uh, it's basically speech that you don't like. You could you could boil it down to to that definition. And and the EU Commissioner for Judicial Affairs has just expressed dissatisfaction with the implementation of uh, of of this code of conduct, and she has you know threatened. Uh, these companies, and uh, that that uh, she will, sh- if they don't, if they don't uh, catch up, she will put pressure on 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 European Union governments, countries to pass tougher laws. So it's just not a code of conduct, but it will it will become law. So f- specifically for Google, Twitter, Facebook, and uh, presumably other companies, this is in exchange. They sign on to this code of conduct. They sign on in exchange for access to those markets, exactly, essentially? Exactly, yeah. So th- there's, there are trade implications here. Yes. And uh, companies uh, that, op- that are from the United States, as you say, that are generally very open, you know, they're strongly encouraged to do that in those countries, but there's no reason why uh, that type of technology or whatever they're using in order to police speech couldn't be deployed in a, in a country that celebrates free speech like the United States, in principle, not. And and uh, you know they also they already have this experience with countries like Russia and China. 
Turkey, I suppose. Uh, but you would you would never imagine that uh, you know allies with a common uh, enlightenment legacy uh, would uh, would do these things. Uh, Greg Lukianoff of uh, Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education has said uh, either in this podcast and maybe elsewhere, you know, how is it possible that I am better off by not knowing or not having access to what you really think about things? Exactly. And I, and I think that's a key argument for – that's a key point, a key argument for not um, banning this kind of speech. Because the only way to work out your differences is to know what people think and believe when they express it. So you can take it on uh, and you can work out your disagreements. Um, uh, uh, I, I, I don't know of any historical example uh, indicating that people will change their mind or their opinions just because they are banned. I think it's quite the opposite. Um, when you when you outlaw certain opinions, people you know tend to think you know then I must be right. <laughs> um, or at the very least, it's compelling in a way that it wasn't compelling before. Yes, and it also when it I mean the big issue in Europe, of course, is Islam and Muslim integration, and uh, and when you ban uh, Holocaust denial, for instance, the biggest percentage of Holocaust deniers in today's Europe, they are Muslims. It, it provides them with a sense of exclusion because in France, for instance, you don't have a blasphemy law, so you are allowed to publish um, cartoons offending the religious sensibilities of Muslims, but, but they are not allowed to uh, air you know, their outrageous opinions about the Holocaust uh, and Jews, and they see that as a double standard. And, and it gives them a sense that we are not part of the community. There is one standard for us and another standard for everybody else. And that, that's, that does not promote integration and a sense of, of equal treatment uh, before the law. So what do you see happening in the next three or four years? Is this is the trend of signing on to for companies to sign on to codes of conduct in Europe, for countries to adopt new laws restricting certain expressions of speech that are admittedly not specifically threatening in and of themselves, but promote uh, certain uh, disfavorable ideas like terrorism. It will, it will increase, I'm sure, and, and we are facing big challenges ahead because we have not seen the last terrorist attack motivated by you know islamist ideology we have we have had the refugee crisis last year so european countries had to integrate a lot of newcomers with different cultural background and unfortunately most european politicians believe that the the way to ban to manage diversity of culture ethnicity and religion is to have less diversity when it comes to speech it's a paradox, and it's it's unnatural because you 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 would say the the more diverse a society is, in terms of culture, ethnicity, and religion, the in 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 the more diverse ways people will express themselves is if they really believe in, you know, their cultural, religious, and ethnic uh, uh, affiliation. But in order to save the social peace and create social harmony temporarily. 
for sure because it's not going away. But but unfortunately, the the the, the instinct among European politicians is you know in order to keep the peace, we have to ban things. So so I think we are facing a more anti-liberal uh, future in that sense, and it all boils down to me to the uh, the lack or the inability of many European countries to manage diversity. That's a historical fact. Europe has not been very good at that. Um, and and the instinctive reaction uh, among many European t- politicians is that we need less freedom in order to manage this uh, diversity instead of more freedom. Uh, I would like to see, you know, a European narrative or a narrative about the future of Europe that would put freedom at its center. And why do I think, why, why does that make sense? Because if you look at uh, the Europe of today, it was created in the aftermath of World War II. And World War II, the Holocaust and the mass killings of, um, of uh, Europeans happened because of First, a cooperation, and then a confrontation between two totalitarian dictatorships, Hitler's Nazi Germany and Stalin's Communist Soviet Union. So I would think that in order to prevent a repetition of these events, you would need an anti-totalitarian narrative. You would need a narrative that would put freedom at the center of an imagined future of, uh, of Europe, um, but unfortunately that, that's not happening. Fleming Rose is an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate this podcast at iTunes and Google Play and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>